Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Dr. Charlene Trestral, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Jeremy, how are you? Mate, I'm as good as ever. Really, really excited about this chat. Charlene, whereabouts are you calling from today? I am calling from Sydney. I am sitting at the University of Technology Sydney Ultimo campus, and that's where I am calling from. You're a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Technology Sydney. What does that mean? Yeah, really good question. So what I am doing here is looking at the effects of pollution on the marine environment. And so my goal is to understand how new pollutants that enter our waterways are affecting the plants and animals that live there. I've heard you speak on various sort of uh, media fronts, but you're obviously a passionate communicator about plastics. Where does this passion come from? A few different places, I think. So I love the marine environment. But I think I love it because I never got to go to the ocean as a child. (laughs) I grew up in the far northern suburbs of Melbourne, and it's kind of hard to get to a beach when you live that far away. And so going to the beach was a real novelty for me, and we very rarely did it when I was growing up. And it turned the ocean into a place of mystery and magic because when I did get to go to the beach, I had so many questions. What's this? What's that? Why does the beach smell funny? All of those kind of (laughs) questions and no one could answer it. So I think I fell in love with the ocean because I rarely got to go to it. And I remember being in high school and another student said, when I grow up, I want to be a marine biologist. And my response was, oh my God, is that a job? Can I do that? (laughs) And so that's the career path I took. But as I matured, I started to become interested in how we interact with our environment. As humans, we obviously use the resources in our environment, but we also create a lot of unintended consequences through our actions. And one of the things that we've done is we've created plastic, which is an amazing material. Plastic is flexible. It lasts for a very long time. It's revolutionized a lot of our lives, but it comes with this unintended consequence of it becomes a waste product that is hard to break down. And so I'm fascinated with, it's almost like a balancing act, isn't it? I'm fascinated with the balancing act of using our resources, but using them in a way that 
doesn't harm the environment. So I think that's how I came to be in pollution research and in particular marine pollution research. When did you start to notice, Charlene, the, the shift in the media in response to plastic? Um, when did you start seeing it in the mainstream? I mean, you've obviously been interested in pollution for a long time. When did you start to see the general Joe public become aware of plastic? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that certainly I came to the topic about six years ago and there was a lot of focus on big pieces of plastic. Even six, ten years ago, we were starting to see really obvious signs of plastic pollution. Whales with bellies full of plastic or seabirds choked with plastic items. So that was already hitting the media and getting some attention. But where it really took off um, was about maybe five years ago, microplastics hit the media. And that was a shift because then the public started to talk about plastic that we couldn't really see. And there was this idea that whilst plastic in a large clump is quite bad for the environment, there's a hidden threat to plastic and it's microplastics that can't be seen with the naked eye, but are all around us. So, There's certainly been a shift in the media towards looking at plastic, and I think that's generated a lot of public interest, which is great because we all use plastic and we all create plastic waste. So the more attention we can focus on this, the more chance we have of making positive behavioural changes that benefit the environment. And with that media attention, or maybe in parallel to that media attention, there's been more scientific attention around the impacts of that plastic pollution, not just from a, a marine ecosystem or an ecological perspective, but also a, a human health perspective. So we're finding it in the in our stool samples, in our digestive systems, our lungs, the placentas of our unborn babies, our blood. And I know you've been looking at this issue for quite some time and are more educated than most to answer this question. So I'm just going to ask it straight up. Is microplastic pollution a risk to human health? Mm. It's a bold question Mm. and you won't like my answer because my (laughs) answer is going to be a very soft caveated answer. Where we are at the moment with the science is that we don't really understand what microplastics are doing inside the human body. And this is not surprising. It takes a very long time for us to do scientific studies on human health. And so we don't really have the science to prove cause and effect. As you said, we do know that we have microplastics in our body. We know that there are microplastics being pumped through our blood right now. And we eat microplastics, we breathe them in. They are in our stools, our blood, our placenta. They're they're in our body. But we don't know yet what they're doing in the body simply because the science hasn't caught up. But that doesn't mean we can't make educated guesses about what they are doing in our body. Because scientists have been working with microplastics in aquatic organisms for about 20 years. We knew that microplastics existed in the 1970s. And for 20 years, there's been really solid effort to understand how microplastics affect animals. And so they can give us an indication of what microplastics might be doing inside the human body. 
but I hesitate to say it's an indication, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that human body perspective. So, for example, we swig on a plastic water bottle and somehow or whatever, plastic enters our digestive system. Can you take us on a journey through our digestive system and talk about how the different you know, parts of the body, the different organs of the body are actually affected by those microplastics. Yeah, absolutely. So the human digestive system is very similar to an animal's digestive system. So we can take what we know about microplastics journeying through an animal and we can start to make some parallels to the human system. So as you eat and drink anything, the very first place that that food and that water goes is into the stomach. And that's the same place that microplastics end up when you first ingest them as well. And what we know is happening inside the stomach of muscles, marine muscles that eat microplastics, is that those plastics are interfering with digestive enzyme production. So in some cases, microplastics actually reduce the production of digestive enzymes by 50%. So there's an indication that plastic in the stomach is actually changing the way your stomach digests food. And that could be a bad thing because we rely on those digestive enzymes to break down the food and release the energy we need. And we then use that energy to live and grow and reproduce. So potentially, by interfering with the way our stomachs digest food, microplastics could be affecting the energy we receive from the meal that we eat. I actually did a bit of research on this and I used mussels as my test animal. And when I told my supervisor at the time what I had discovered, hey, microplastics are interfering with enzyme production in the stomach, her first response was, that's fantastic. You've just found a diet pill. We could put plastic in a diet <laughs> pill and then we could eat as much as we like and not get the calories. Wow. But <laughs> it's I love the novel idea, sure. but I think I'm still far away from getting my diet pill on the market because the <laughs> other thing that plastics do inside the stomach is they leak chemicals. We think of plastic as a solid item because to us it is a solid item but it contains a cocktail of chemicals and those chemicals can leach out of the plastic. When scientists looked at the stomach contents of seabirds, they found that the oil in the stomach actually contained a lot of plastic additives. And so we know that the stomach is actually a place where plastics are leaching out these chemicals and that can have an effect on the body as well. Some of those chemicals are endocrine disruptors and some of those chemicals are neurotoxins. So the plastics that are releasing these chemicals can have those effects on the body as well. So not quite diet pill ready because plastic is a chemical cocktail and mm. we, we don't want that. Charlene, uh, going back to Brad's first question, a human health risk, we ask a lot of people that same question and everyone mm. says a pretty similar answer to yourself. Sure. We need more research. We, you know, we don't understand. But from sitting here... And in our seats, wouldn't a cautious approach be far better now? Like, hey, guys, we, we know it's happening in seabirds. We know it's happening in marine mammals. It's happening to us. Surely it's not going to be a good outcome. Why are people reluctant to put up the red flag now and go, hey, look, guys, this is a really bad situation? Well, I think in the absence of a tangible cause and effect study, it's hard to make changes because change needs effort. And so just thinking as a consumer, a personal consumer, 
sometimes I really want a coffee, but I have left my keep cup at home and I'm tempted to use a disposable coffee cup and that has a plastic lining. By changing consumer behavior, that takes effort. And so I think until we get science that conclusively proves that the plastics in your body are having a negative effect, it can sometimes be really hard to get that energy to make a change. So Mm. I think that's what is the barrier. That's one perspective. If I give a different perspective is there's a vested interest in, in the status quo always. And we, we shouldn't shy away from the fact that there's a lot of money involved in producing plastic and petrochemical products. And so I think whilst, the, yeah, the, the science is not definitive in terms of a, a cause and effect between plastic and human health uh, negative impacts, for me, the, the overwhelming reason why there hasn't been more uh, action in this space is the fact that there's just so much money to be made out of the petrochemical industry. I feel as though the human health impacts and also the ecological consequences of that plastic pollution just aren't on the ledges of big business, basically. Uh, it's it's easier to sort of just roll the dice on, on the global health population than it is to try and find a different alternative to the production of plastic products. Yeah, I think that's true of environmental pollution in general. It can be Mm. really hard to put a dollar value on effects to the environment or effects to health. So that having the science there to make that conclusive link would certainly help and drive change, I think. But as I said, the easiest way to demonstrate that microplastics do harm humans would be to take a group of people and force feed the microplastics and then see what it does to their body. But obviously, we can't do that. That's generally frowned upon with human (laughs) ethics approvals. Um, And so, when we're trying to make links between something in our life and human health, it takes a very long time because we have to do it in a roundabout way because we can't do that direct research. I wonder, we're all going to die and you can give your body to science. I wonder if that is a, a study that's actually been done now. Like, say, for instance, God forbid I get a by bus tomorrow, I've donated my organs. You know, are people looking at that research right now? Are they I'm slicing over my lungs and everything? Are they looking at that issue? Is someone looking at that issue around the world? That's a really great question. And it's one that I've been wondering as well, because it would be really interesting to go through the human body organ by organ and to see if we can find the microplastics. I don't know if that study has been done, but I also haven't I haven't delved into that specific aspect of it. So potentially someone out there right now is looking at it. Certainly people have been playing in human feces and have found the microplastics in the feces. But whether we've actually gone through cadavers and looked at organ by organ, I'm not sure. Maybe, Brad, that's something that you and I can uh, champion, mate. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But uh, <laughs> speaking of poop, if I can, and it's one of my favorite topics sure. as a, as a for, former sewage treatment engineer, you actually sent me a, a really interesting study, and I'll include a link to it in the, in the show notes. It was called The Analysis of Microplastics in Human Feces Reveals a Correlation Between Fecal Microplastics and Inflammatory Bowel Disease Status. You weren't the author, and it gets back to that point you're making before, is that we haven't got this control group of humans versus that are exposed to contamination and, and, and not exposed. So we're always going to be struggled with 
uh, finding a direct cause-effect diagnosis in terms of plastic pollution. But what was really interesting in this study was essentially uh, stated, and, I, and I'll, I'll quote it here, it states, the study found, in, uh, stating now, found that the fecal microplastic contamination in irritable inflammatory bowel disease patients was significantly higher than that in healthier people indicating that a positive correlation exists between the concentration of fecal microplastics and the severity of that inflammatory bowel disease. So that that for me was fascinating. It's not a it's not a and there's obviously a big difference between causation and correlation for sure, but we are this study basically definitively shows that people with IBD have higher concentrations of microplastics in their systems indicating that there is a link which I found fascinating. I'm not sure if you had any comments on that. Well, it demonstrates that they have higher concentrations of microplastic in their poo, but not necessarily in their systems. So one of the things the authors raised in their paper was the possibility that maybe people with irritable bowel disease are releasing more microplastics in their poo rather than retaining it compared to people who don't have irritable bowel disease. So they weren't able to show that people with IBD have more microplastic in their body, just that they're releasing more of it in their feces. And so they weren't quite sure if the microplastics in the poo was a reflection of the IBD or a cause of the IBD. Yeah. But certainly when that paper was published, the media really went gangbusters. It was really big news. And so I think we'll see a lot more research on this potential link in the future. Certainly when we look at animals, we see that most animals will release the microplastics from their digestive system inside their feces. So it's a little bit different to large plastic in, say, a whale, where it gets stuck and it stays there. Microplastics inside animals, just like humans, it appears, do release those plastics in their poo. But the question is, are they having harm as they pass through the system? Just because something goes in one end and comes out the other doesn't mean it didn't cause something bad along that way. Yeah, and I would have thought I would rather release the microplastics Mm. and get them out of my system. You know, if, if we were thinking about it, Brad, would you like your microsystems to be in your system or would you like no. to put – Exactly. <laughs> so, no, but, but, but going back to the people with irritable bowel syndrome, they are releasing the microplastics. So, people that don't have irritable bowel syndrome, does it give you any information on that? Do they tend to store it? Well, that's what they weren't quite sure about yeah. in that study. Yeah. So, well, we don't have answers to that, but I think we will soon. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but I'd expect, yeah, if I'm pooing more microplastics, it's probably an indication that I'm also consuming more microplastics as well. There's obviously a might be a, an imbalance in terms of reta- retention of microplastics. But yeah, I think if I've got plastic in my poop, I'm probably consuming a bit of plastic as well. But what was interesting, the, the study also found that, and I'm quoting it again, the plastic packaging of drinking water and food and dust exposure are important sources of human exposure to microplastics. And I guess that was my, sort of leads me to my next question is, what, what are the key ways of intaking or ingesting microplastics? Is it through breathing? Is it through, um, you know, through the mouth, consumption of food, water? What do you think it is? So I don't mean to 
depress you, but there are quite a few sources of microplastics that end up in our body. So the thing to remember is that any plastic item creates microplastics. And this is because plastic, whilst it seems solid, is actually quite fragile on a microscopic level. So if we could zoom into any plastic item, what we would see is that the surface is continually fragmenting, shedding these tiny pieces of plastic. Now have a think about all the plastic that touches your food and drink. There are plastic implements in the factories. The packaging might be plastic. There are plastic utensils in your kitchen. All of these are sources of microplastics that can fall into the food and drink that you then consume. They have found that just opening a plastic lolly bag releases microplastics or the kitchen sponge. Sponges used to be made out of an animal, deep sea sponges. They are now made out of plastic. And a recent study found that just washing your plates with a plastic sponge releases microplastics onto the surface. So microplastics are coming from anywhere. And that's one source. Another source is that they're actually inside the animals we eat. So we've touched on how ocean animals eat microplastics. If we then eat those animals that contain plastic, that's another source of plastic for us, especially in animals where you eat the whole animal. So oysters and mussels, we eat that whole animal, including their stomach and their intestines where the microplastics will be. Also prawns. If you don't de-poop your prawns, de-vein your prawns, you'll be eating the microplastics inside their digestive tract. So animals that we eat are another source of plastic. And Brad, you touched on a third source. You talked about inhaling plastic. Yes, we do inhale plastics, usually in the form of microfibers that are coming off our synthetic clothing or they come up off our couches and our carpets. Those are all synthetic fibers. They do go into the lungs, but your lungs work to bring back all those particulates in mucus and then you swallow it down the back of your throat. So even microplastics that you breathe in can then end up inside your digestive system. Those are three sources of microplastics in our lives. Any plastic item, animals that have eaten microplastics that we then eat, and fibers that we're inhaling. Those all end up inside our digestive system. There are a lot of sources. When you start to think about all the plastic in your life, they are all sources of microplastics. So let's face it, we're, we're eating plastic every day because I while, while you're talking Charlene I'm going or well, well, the the cooking utensils the you know we go out and have lunch we get a takeaway we basically everywhere you look we're eating it breathing it washing you know when you say before I was just thinking about the sponge I'm like of course you're using a sponge yeah you know it, so with all these causes that are going on what are we going to do about it i mean i said do, do we do we go and take all your plastic wear out of your kitchen because if you think about it you prepare your meals and you know 80 percent of the time you're preparing them at home you've got to try and minimize that risk by getting rid of plastic that you're preparing your, your food with i mean have you got any suggestions for the listeners as to how we can de-risk this for ourselves i think if we're being honest we can never remove plastic entirely from our lives. 
plastic makes certain things feasible. It allows us to preserve food and to carry that food large distances from where it's grown to where we purchase it. Plastic is in our kitchen helping us cook. There are so many plastic items that have become essential in our lives that I just don't think we can ever eliminate all the plastic. But we can make little changes that reduce our exposure. So, for example, many people are not aware that tea bags contain plastic. So, those triangle tea bags, they're really fancy and they have loose leaf tea in them. They are essentially pantyhose, they are made of nylon. And scientists have found that when you put the tea bag in hot water, it fragments, releasing microplastics into the tea. So one way to reduce your microplastics burden could be to say no to tea bags. Even your regular tea bags are usually some kind of plastic composite, and so they'll contain some type of plastic. So maybe making a switch to loose leaf tea with a metal strainer, if that's an option for you, that reduces one source of microplastics entirely. Another one is say no to disposable coffee cups. So whilst they look like paper on the outside, these cups actually have a thin lining of plastic and that's what makes them waterproof. But that plastic lining is exposed to hot coffee and the heat causes the plastic to fragment into microplastics that you then drink. So switching to a ceramic mug or your glass keep cup is another way to reduce the burden of microplastics that you're consuming. It's not feasible to remove plastic from every aspect of your life. If you consider how many things you eat that come in plastic packaging, um, that's all a source of microplastics. But you can make little switches that reduce the burden that you're eating. And the benefit, the additional benefit of switching away from plastics is that Every time you say no to a piece of plastic, that's one less piece of plastic that ends up in the environment as waste. One less piece of plastic that is shattering into microplastics in the ocean where animals eat them. So every time you say no to plastic, you're also benefiting the environment by creating less plastic pollution. Yeah, some great tips. We had a podcast guest a little while ago, Garth Covington, who talks about, from Canada, he talked about yeah, the human consumption of microplastics. And yeah, it's all ringing true as to what you were just reiterating. You know, like the inhalation ones are real doozy for me. The fact that we are breathing so much plastic and then ingesting it. Obviously, if we can reduce our exposure to plastic carpets, plastic fibers, obviously pla- a lot of our pla- uh, clothing has plastic. So if we can reduce that, fantastic. You talked about the uh, consumption of animal products, hashtag plant power, uh, Charlene, I'm, I'm eight years, uh, 100% plant-based. And it's one reason I, I don't eat animals or, or fish is because they are bioaccumulators. I, I look at prawns as the cockroaches of the sea. There's no <laughs> way I'd want to eat seafood uh, for various reasons, including I don't want to eat plastic or heavy metals, etc. But I remember Garth talking about, um, yeah, the, the takeaway containers. It, basically anything in a food or a drink that you have in plastic, that is going to leach or fragment into you, essentially. So if you can reduce your consumption of anything in plastic, fantastic. And I remember one doozy that Garth pointed out, which really uh, flabbergasted Jeremy and myself, was plastic water bottles. They are they seem to be a major source of you know, microplastic ingestion. So if you took anything away from 
any of our chats is just don't use single-use plastic water bottles or drinks. It's just, to your point, yeah, we reduce our pl- plastic consumption or ingestion, but obviously that's not going to be entering into the environment as well. It's a win-win. But yeah, I like anything. It needs to be simple and convenient. But I think uh, I should not I should point out one thing, and my mother will, uh, she's a long, long-time podcast guest, uh, listener, Charlene, as Jeremy knows. One thing I've heard you talk about or, or in one of your uh, news articles that you've been quoted was one of the best things you can do is just make sure you vacuum your house maybe every week or so, uh, which my mother would love to hear. <laughs> um, so <laughs> maybe we're, <laughs> we're obviously reducing dust exposure. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the idea. So if you vacuum, you're bringing up those fibres into your vacuum. So you're, you're reducing the fibres that will fly up into the air as mm. you walk along the carpet. Yeah. But of course, everyone knows vacuuming never ends because the carpet will keep shedding fibres. So you're trapped forever in a cycle of vacuuming. Well, obviously, don't have carpets either. Like, or I, don't I'm have a, carpets. Yeah, I, I can't stand carpets for that very reason again. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so I've stopped drinking coffee a couple of years ago, so I very rarely would have a cup of coffee now. I do drink tea out of tea bags. I go and get my loose leaf tea and get my metal strainer, and I go, great, I'm stopping microplastics going into my body. What is the biggest source of, of microplastic ingestion? Is it your tea bags? Is it your plastic takeaway? Is it your water bottles? I mean, what what I'm trying to get for myself and the listeners is if I'm going to commit to something, I want it to, you know, be worth its while. I don't want to, you know, stop my tea bag ingestion if it's doing (laughs) bugger all for me. I can commit to, well, because we've got to make changes for for people that can actually do it. I mean, the one of the things about plastic, it's so cheap. Thinking about my kitchen tools and, you know, your wooden spatulas and your fish slices and you name it. But, Let's face it, not everyone can afford to get a premium one made out of metal and mm. so forth because this, the economics don't work out. So do we know what the biggest source of ingestion is in the human body? That's a great question. And you've raised some really good points because not every switch option is available to everyone. And some options are just not desirable. I don't particularly want to use metal implements on my frying pans because I know that scratches the surface and reduces their longevity. So maybe for me, I'll stick with my plastic spatulas. We have lots of research about how many microplastics come off particular items. 
So I guess your lifestyle depends on which is the biggest source. For tea bags, every fancy nylon tea bag releases billions of microplastics per cup. Whereas something like um, a bottle of water, the results were much more variable. In some situations, it was only around 300 microplastics in a litre of bottled water, but other brands had 10 times that. And so it's hard to pinpoint how big each source is to your microplastics burden because a lot of things influence the shedding of microplastics. So, for example, I have a friend who uses plastic water bottles to freeze water on hot summer days, and then she takes that with her to work. And she'll shake up the ice to sort of get it to melt a bit faster throughout the day. But freezing plastic and exposing it to abrasion, like the ice rubbing backwards and forwards, creates more microplastics compared to if the bottle was just sitting at room temperature on the desk. So that might be a particularly large source of microplastics for her, simply because she's using the plastic in a particular way. The answer, I'm afraid, is it depends because every plastic item is used by individuals in a different way. But if you keep in mind things like heat, cold and mechanical stress all create more microplastics. So if you keep your plastic items away from those three things as much as possible, you'll reduce the amount of microplastics they create. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, stopped, I, I stopped reheating takeaways and, and plastics a long, long time ago. Yes, I love that. Brad, let, let's face it, when you're starving and you need some Uber Eats, I know what you, you get angry, so you, you'll get the food. <laughs> but then you're getting it in a warm bit of plastic, a nice curry or something, and, and you go, oh, gee, there's microplastics in that. You don't eat that, so you stick that in the fridge, and then you might reheat that at work the next day. It's a myriad of, of, of things going on here. It's almost like we need a big long list for humans to look at, and we go, yep, I do this, yep, I do this, yep, I do this. And these are all things that we can take out of our diet. But it's, it's awareness, Charlene. You know, this is the great thing about this podcast is that we get to find these things out and hopefully take little nuggets out of our chats and take them back into our lives to make change. Mm. But it sounds like this microplastics, you, you've got to make a lot of changes to get microplastics out. Like just when you said before, you don't want to use a metal spatula on your frying pan. What type of frying pan are you using, Charlene? I'm not too sure. It's probably a Teflon coated one. There, oh, here we go. That's, that's, that's potentially worse, Charlotte. We can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other podcast. I know. Yeah. <laughs> This is the point. The, the, the point that I guess I think both of you have just made is that it's really difficult to uh, eliminate or even reduce the amount of microplastic we consume, and it's confusing, mixed signals, uh, it depends type thing. I feel as though it may be actually beyond the consumer to actually act appropriately. And I feel as though we're actually putting too much of the responsibility on the consumer. Fundamentally, this stuff is being used by us because it's being produced by others. And it's a very, very small number of groups or organizations relative to the myriad of 8 billion people plus that have got to make these decisions on a day-in, day-out basis that have potentially are confused, uninformed, or just don't care. But meanwhile, they could be potentially suffering the consequences of unknown impacts associated 
associated with this microplastic consumption. I feel as though this conversation really does need to be directed back at the producers. They're producing this material. There's an unknown element in terms of the consequences to human health associated with this uh, material. It's up to, you know, it's currently the remit of, of passionate and poorly funded scientists to look at the uh, risks associated with this usage. But fundamentally, the, the producers are the ones making all the money and putting the blame on others. I feel as though that needs to be directed completely back on them. But also, I feel as though these producers need to recognise that they're potentially facing an enormous lawsuit in the future. I look at someone like DuPont, and you'd mentioned your, your Teflon frying pan. So DuPont make essentially, I think it was th- uh, 3M or Triple M, it's a PFAS, it's alkyl substance, which decades later was found to be horrendously bad, or at least uh, there's a strong link, I should use my words carefully, there's a strong link between PFAS and cancer in humans. But fundamentally, these guys were found guilty in a court of in, in America and fined, I think, something to the tune of about $471 million or something crazy because of their essentially laxy-daisy approach to ensuring that this material was safe to be discharged. I feel as though the plastic producers of the world need to be put on notice to say, hey, guys, just so you're aware, there are concerns about this pro- product that you're producing, and there's a, there's a big chance that you might be found heavily liable for the cleanup and the, uh, I guess, the, the compensation associated with all the human health risks you guys have essentially are responsible for. What are your thoughts on that, Charlene? Well, that's a, it's a really complex issue. We have seen some changes in plastic manufacturing. So, for example, you might pick up a baby bottle, a brand new plastic baby bottle, and it will say BPA-free. And what that's referring to is we used to add BPA, the chemical, to plastics in the manufacturing process. But over time, it was found that BPA leaches out of the plastic and is actually an endocrine disruptor. And so there was a push to take this out of manufacturing. So some products now say, look, we're BPA free. But the problem is just because BPA isn't in the plastic doesn't mean there's no other chemicals. All plastic is a cocktail of chemicals. And many of those chemicals, we simply don't understand what they do inside the body of people, inside the bodies of animals, or out in the environment. So I look at plastic and think many plastic items are a big unknown. We just don't know the chemicals coming out of them or how many microplastics or what that's doing inside our bodies or or the bodies of animals. So I think plastic is a bit of a mystery in that sense. And it's interesting because it's such an everyday humdrum object and it's flown under the radar for a very long time because we use it for just about everything every day. But when you stop to consider that it's actually a product that is creating microplastics and chemical leachates, it's not quite an everyday humdrum object at all, is it? But as a consumer, sometimes there's simply no alternative. So I struggle to find milk that isn't in a plastic bottle or yogurt that isn't in a plastic container. So sometimes there's just no other option for me than to use plastic. Where the manufacturers fit in is a great question because the solution requires everyone working together. And whether that is more research on the chemicals and the microplastic creation in plastic objects or designing better, safer plastics or biodegradable plastics, we need to tackle this from so many angles. Right now, it's up to the consumer 
to identify the plastic in their lives and if they want to try and remove that plastic source. But we are limited as consumers because sometimes there are no alternatives. And so we need to tackle this from so many different angles in order to get a handle on firstly what's happening and then find more sustainable solutions to fix the problem. If we're sitting here on this podcast today and plastic wasn't in our life, plastic hadn't been invented, and I come along and go, hey, Charlene, Brad, I've got this new product, it's plastic, and look, we're not quite sure what it does to the body, but we know that it you know, leaks, leaches stuff and then microplastics go into your body, and you know, we're not sure, do you want to put it into your lives? What would you say? Well, I'm not sure when we first created plastics, I'm not sure we knew that they leaked chemicals. For sure. So I, I guess so, we're, we're, I'm going, is this passing the pub test or not? Because Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. And, and, and the precedent has been set before. Like, yeah, maybe we didn't know it, it would cause damage or leached into you know the muscles and your digestive systems, whatever, but we do now. But if I look at other chemicals and, and some, some doozies stand out, so DDT, we thought that was safe, didn't have a choice to use that, and, and they found that there was a potential link to killing a whole bunch of birds, et cetera. It was removed from distribution, completely banned. CFCs, we found after a while they were in refrigerators everywhere. We found after a while, gee whiz, there's a big hole in the ozone layer. We need to uh, get rid of these CFCs, and they were basically stopped production or at least significantly reduced production. Lead in petrol, another example. The petro oil industry were like, no, no, it's going to cost us another 0.001 cent per litre to make it if we don't have lead. No, there's no link. Meanwhile, doctors found lead in babies' beat teeth and all that sort of stuff. And long story short, lead was banned. We just seem to be really slow to move on plastic. And I feel as though the reason for that is just that there's so much money involved in it. And that's the only reason. Uh, well, so I feel as though the precedent has too. been, yeah, but so was, so was the other things. DDT was used everywhere. CFCs were used everywhere. Lead was in petrol everywhere. I just feel as though we're very slow to move on this one key issue and it's just not good enough. We do seem to be really slow to move, but I would add to your comment, you've, you've said that it's profit driving the, the lack of change. I think for me, another factor is simply that plastic facilitates a lot of our modern lives and we don't have an alternative yet. So, especially in Australia, we grow food and then it travels long distances to get to the masses in cities. Plastic does make that possible and it preserves food for longer. So, I think in addition to profit, perhaps another reason that we've been slow to look at plastics is because a lot of our modern lifestyle really depends on it and there's no ready alternative at the moment. And I think perhaps it's going in the too hard basket. Yeah. yeah. That's and a good point, yeah. I yeah no, okay, but then oh, it sounds like we're going on about this, but <laughs> it, it, there is just no choice from the consumer's point of view. As you said, Charlene, there is no alternative currently out there in the marketplace. But is that good enough? We don't have a choice. We know this is pretty bad for you. We don't know how bad, but we've still got to use it. Come on, guys, it's okay. I just struggle with that concept, probably like you, Brad. I'm, I'm going, well, you know, we, we know it's coming from big oil. We know it's a byproduct of oil. We, we know it's bad. We just can't quite prove it yet. So we'll just keep chugging it along. And, and meanwhile, these guys just want to produce more. Meanwhile, people like yourself, Charlene, you need more money to get to do more research like all the great scientists out there because we need to hurry up to get the research done to go, oh, look, guys, we were right. It was bad. What are we going to do now? It just, 
That just doesn't sit well with me. Anyway, anyway. Poor right Charlene, she, she's a wonderful scientist. We're sort of uh, yeah. talking to her about the petrochemical industry. It needs yeah. a change. <laughs> well, well it's, all, it's all interconnected, isn't it? Yeah, it's it is. It the is. science and the use and the manufacture yeah. and the policy, and it all comes together to create the situation that we have. Certainly, scientists always need more money to do more research, but I'm not sure there's enough money being put into finding alternative materials and developing alternative materials. Because as you've said, plastic comes from a fossil fuel and that is getting scarcer by the day. Eventually, plastic is going to start to cost more money to make because the oil is running out. So at some point, we really do need an alternative it would be better to have it now rather than at breaking point when everything is too expensive to manufacture and we've been using all this plastic for decades and decades. So, yes, more research definitely, but also more drive to fuel policy changes and put pressure on changes to the system so that we can get to a better solution. Uh, fair call. Well, speaking of, uh, of science and research, and we're not sure about the link between uh, microplastics and human health. So from your perspective, Charlene, what research is really needed to better understand that potential link between microplastics and human health? So I think more studies into what microplastics are doing along the intestine would be really beneficial. We know that in animals, as the microplastics move through the intestines, they're actually shredding the inside of the intestines. A lot of microplastics have sharp edges and they keep those sharp edges because they don't digest in the stomach like a piece of food. And so as they move through the intestines, they actually start to cause tissue damage as they move along. This can create inflammation. It can create small tumors when we see in muscles. And I think that is potentially happening also in humans. So I'd love to see more research in what is happening along that intestinal line as microplastics pass through. And that's where that potential link with irritable bowel disease is. They're wondering if maybe the irritability of the bowel is caused by the microplastics grating the edges as they move along. But the other thing that we really desperately need to look at is something called nanoplastics. And so we've been talking about microplastics that are a certain size, they're quite small, but microplastics are plastics and they fragment into smaller plastics. And you move down the scale to nanoplastics. Now, nanoplastics are incredibly small and because they're so small, they have a superpower. They can actually leave the intestines. They pass through the intestinal wall and they can travel through the circulatory system. So they move through your blood. If they're small enough, they can even pass through a cell and go inside a cell. So I think a really interesting area of research would be to understand what are these very small plastics doing inside, for example, a liver cell or a brain cell or a developing embryo? Can plastics actually leave the human intestine and travel through the body like we see in marine animals? So I think we need a little bit more research into what are the plastics doing in the gut? Do they stay there? 
do they cause tissue damage? And do the very small ones leave the intestines and move through the body? Because potentially the effects of microplastics that you eat could be more widespread than just your digestive system. And because we know that they are in the blood and they can pass through the human placenta, there's an indication there that we need to broaden our research to other organs in our body and not just look at the intestines. If listeners are taking any away from this, anything away from this call, it's never drinking another tea bag, never drinking another plastic from a plastic water bottle, never heating or freezing anything with, <laughs> with plastic. My lord, going into the cells of our individual body parts, if like they're brain very cells, small, oh yes, my goodness gracious, yeah. and and all of this comes back to. Uh, well, we need some human bodies to do some research. <laughs> well, Abs- it is. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so will you be donating your body to science? Well, Brad and I, that's it. <laughs> He's a medical even- marvel, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, but, but, but in all seriousness, it c- comes down to we're going to have to at some stage start working on some humans and keep- yes. that, that's exactly what it is. And currently – I mean, I haven't checked my driver's license. So you, you give your organs away or you, whatever you do. That's right. But, but where is it on the line item to say, oh, can we can we give your body to plastic research? I mean, it, it surely it's got to be starting to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. We do need at some point to go through the human body from head to toe and just see what is happening. I think the evidence is building up enough to suggest that we need to move in that direction. It's absolutely wild to think that for 20 years, scientists have been looking at microplastics in marine animals, but it's taken us decades to appreciate that what I see in my laboratory happening to a muscle could also happen to a human. I think there's such a disjunct between how we see ourselves and how we see other animals on this planet that sometimes we fail to appreciate that invertebrates in the ocean might actually be reflective of our own health situation. We are decades behind in the human health department, but the good news is because we've done so much research on marine animals, that starts to give other researchers an indication of where they should be targeting their focus to see if the same things are happening inside a human. We're not starting from scratch. We can look at the animal science and then use that to guide the human health science. Well, that's it, Brad. Here and now, I give my body to plastic research. You heard it here, folks. Here, uh, yeah, we might have Brad, to, you might have to set up a register, Charlene. Uh, <laughs> no Brad, Brad Germany's the number one ticket holder. No, that's <laughs> it. No, because it's going to take that, isn't it? For decades, we've been looking at plastic within uh, animals and not looking at humans, and it just seems odd. That's exactly right. I don't know why it's taken so long to appreciate that animals and humans are essentially made of the same things. We're made of the same cells. We have relatively similar digestive tracts and circulatory systems. And plastic is plastic. Plastic in one animal, we can expect to behave similarly in another animal. And yet the link hasn't really been made until the last three or four years where these studies have started to emerge about plastic in the blood, plastic in the poo. So we are decades behind. But now that there's a focus, I'm hoping to see more human health research in the future. Now that people have been alerted and the media has been keeping this on the agenda for people, that all helps drive funding to science and we can hopefully get some answers. 
What about brushing your teeth? Yes, I haven't seen any studies, but plastic toothbrush bristles will certainly fragment because you're grating, not grating, you're you're rubbing them against your teeth and that mechanical stress will create microplastics. And you can see it happening in your own toothbrush. When you get a clean toothbrush, the bristles are all beautiful and they stand up straight. And after a few weeks, they start to curve outward and they lose their shape. And that's because the plastic is getting brittle and it's fragmenting and losing its integrity. Wow. Wow. I know. <laughs> Look, says- we, we, we try and stay positive on the show and majority of the time we are, but this one's really got to me. I mean, it's... Yeah. The, the nanoplastics are now passing through our cells. That's fascinating. We're actually cyborgs now because, oh well, when you think about it, because plastic passes through the placenta, babies are being born with plastic in their bodies. So that kind of makes us cyborgs, right? Because you have inert particles in your body. Wow. wow. We are actually Liquid cyborgs. plastic man. Um, <laughs> it's like Terminator. What are we up to now? Terminator 6? Yeah. <laughs> Something but, like uh, that. Yeah. Gee whiz, this has been – obviously, we're, we're a little bit gobsmacked with everything, all the truth bombs you've dropped on us today. It's been fascinating chat. When I started, I said I didn't want to be depressing, and <laughs> I can see on your faces that's exactly <laughs> what I've been. I think it's fair to say that plastic is a big problem. It's in every facet of our lives. We know it's creating microplastics. We know we're eating those plastics. And we know that in animals, those plastics do some pretty nasty things. So potentially, that's happening in our body too. But you can start to reduce your burden by making simple switches away from plastic. And the other thing to remember is that it might not be as bad as we think. So maybe we are eating lots of plastic, but it's not enough to trigger any negative health effects. So potentially, it's not all doom and gloom. I know it's really frustrating when a scientist says, we need more research and and can't make a conclusive statement. But that's really where we're at. There's cause for more research. Certainly, if you're worried, start to switch out some plastic in your lives and it benefits the environment. Try not to let it keep you awake at night. Scientists are doing everything they can to really understand the problem. And potentially, it's not as bad as we think. I really hope you're right. Uh, I really Charlene. hope you're right too, Charlene. But look, this is this has been a wonderful chat. I just realised we're all getting together uh, to talk further at the Ocean Lovers Festival Ocean Plastic Action Forum, 15th of March 2023 at Bondi. Charlene's joining a stellar cast of other plastic gurus and I look forward to sort of getting to know more about this issue and obviously meeting you in person, Charlene, then. Uh, so that'll be great fun. But uh, look, this has been a wonderful chat. Um, all I can say is thank you so much for coming on our uh, little podcast today. Look, it, it's been real shocking, uh, but obviously very informative. And I, I remain optimistic, but obviously cautiously optimistic. And I think you're right. If we can try to reduce the amount of plastic in our lives, we'll be benefited a thousand times over. So that's, that's, that's great advice. Thank you. Boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.